This is the Bigger Pockets Podcast Show 871. What's going on, everyone? It's David Green, your host of the Bigger Pockets Real Estate Podcast, joined today by the Data Deli himself, Dave Meyer. And when you've got Dave and David together, you know what that means. It's a bigger news podcast. In these shows, we dig into the news, the data, and the economics impacting the real estate industry so you can use that information to build your wealth. Dave, welcome to the show. Thank you, David. I appreciate it. I'm excited, as always, to be here. But today, I am particularly excited because our guest is one of my all-time favorite guests. His name is Rick Sharga. And if you haven't heard him on any of our shows before, Rick owns CJ Patrick. It's a company that focuses on market intelligence and data, economic research, all specifically for real estate investors. So all the work he and his team do is extremely relevant for the both of us and everyone listening to us. And today we're going to dig into some of the research he's done specifically around foreclosures in the U.S. and what's going on in that part of the housing market. And after the interview, make sure you stick around all the way to the end of the show because Dave and I handle a question seeing green style at the end of the podcast about a listener who's trying to figure out if they should use a HELOC or a cash out refinance to scale their portfolio. All that and more on today's epic show. Let's get to Rick. Welcome to the show today, Rick. Uh, excited to talk about foreclosures. That's always a fun topic for real estate investors to get into. But before we talk about where they're at today, let's talk a little bit about historical foreclosure activity. What can you share with us? Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. Always always good to talk to you guys. Um, foreclosures uh, are an unfortunate reality in the mortgage industry. Um, typically, uh, people do pay their mortgages uh, on time and regularly. Uh, but but about one to one and a half percent of loans at, at any point in time are usually in foreclosure. Uh, and about four percent of loans are delinquent, but not yet in foreclosure. Uh, we saw a huge spike back uh, leading into the Great Recession about 10 years ago, where foreclosure rates actually approached about four percent of all loans, which was just re- remarkably high. And about 12 percent of loans were delinquent. And, and a lot of that was because of really bad uh, bad behavior on the part of the lenders, to be honest with you, uh, and a lot of real estate speculation that was kind of reckless. But, but historically speaking, you're, you're looking at about one to one and a half percent of loans in foreclosure, uh, and that would represent a, a kind of normal year. I think a lot of real estate investors follow foreclosures really closely because it one has implications for housing prices if there's all of a sudden a huge influx of foreclosures that could put downward pressure on prices. But also just because recently there's been such a shortage of supply and inventory on the market, I think a lot of people are wondering if foreclosures are going to tick up and perhaps increase the amount of homes that are up for sale or up for auction in the case of a foreclosure at any given time. So I'm just curious, Rick, like what's been happening recently and is there any chance that foreclosures might add to some inventory in the coming year. Let's unpack a couple of the things that you said there. The the interest that uh, I've seen from investors in foreclosure properties over the years uh, is is purely mathematical. Uh, Typically, you can buy a property in some stage of foreclosure for a whole lot less than you can buy a property at full market value. And and we can talk about it as we we get into our conversation a little bit, but there are three different stages uh, of of properties in distress that that people can buy foreclosures uh, during and 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 the the risk and reward varies uh, accordingly. When COVID hit, um, we were already in a, a a market where there wasn't a lot of foreclosure activity, 
uh, we're probably running at about 60% of normal levels of foreclosure. So, you know, a, a little more than a half a percent of loans were, were in foreclosure at the time. And then the government put a foreclosure moratorium in place that lasted over two years. Uh, so really about the only properties that were being foreclosed on during that, that pandemic era were commercial properties or properties that were vacant and abandoned. Uh, but if, but if you had a, a more conventional, traditional loan, even if you were behind on your payments, you were you were fairly safe. And then the government also put a, a mortgage forbearance program in place, uh, where basically all you had to do as a homeowner, <clears throat> excuse me, was call your your mortgage servicer, say that your income had been affected by COVID, uh, and you were allowed to skip mortgage payments. And and that program lasted for about two years. So we're we're coming out of a period where we had virtually nothing going into foreclosure. Uh, for an extended period of time, resulting in some of the lowest foreclosure activity levels in history. And even today, we're running at about 60% of the level of activity we saw back in 2019, when, as I mentioned, foreclosures weren't particularly high to begin with. Um, we're, we're also seeing a, a difference in the stages of foreclosure and, and the, the the rate we're seeing compared to pre, pre-pandemic. So if you look at foreclosure starts, that's the first legal notice a borrower gets that they're in default on their loan. They're coming back at about 70 to 80% of pre-pandemic numbers. But if you look at the number of properties being auctioned off in foreclosure sales, they're still down at about 50% of pre-pandemic levels. Uh, and if you look at bank repossessions, uh, which is what happens to properties that don't sell at those auctions, they're at about 30% of pre-pandemic levels. So if you're an investor looking to buy a foreclosure property, uh, the, the market's a whole lot different than it was prior to the pandemic and way different than it was going back to the, the crisis in 2008. Uh, you mentioned there's three levels of foreclosure. Can you briefly cover what those are? And then we'll talk about how those are different now compared to where they were in the past. Yeah, sure. That's a, that's a great question. Uh, there, there's what we call a pre-foreclosure stage, and that's when the borrower gets that first legal notice of foreclosure in, in a state like California or Texas, where the, the foreclosures are done in a non-judicial process, that's called a notice of default. If you're in a state like New York or Florida or Illinois, where it's a judicial foreclosure process, it's called a Liz Pendens filing. So you you get that first legal notice, and that starts the gears moving on a, on a foreclosure. Uh, there's, there's a timeline that every state has that goes from that first stage to the second stage, and that's a notice of sale. And that's when the borrower uh, has kind of exhausted that pre-foreclosure period uh, and the lender has basically told them that the property is going to be auctioned off either by a, a courthouse auction or a sheriff's sale on a certain date. So that's that's the second stage of foreclosure. And that results in in that auction, that, that sheriff's sale taking place, uh, where typically a lot of investors will buy those properties. The properties that fail to sell at those auctions are typically repossessed by the lenders uh, those properties are, are taken back as something the industry refers to as REOs. That stands for stands for real estate owned because the industry has no creativity whatsoever in naming things. Um, but at that point, the the bank or the lender has repossessed the property to 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 you know, basically make it whole for whatever the, the 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 unpaid loan balance was, and they'll resell those properties either through a, a real estate agent or through one of the online auction companies. So those are your, your three stages of foreclosure. 
And so pre-foreclosure would be like a notice of default and anything else would be included there. Yeah. And and what's really interesting in today's market, David, is that we've seen the percentage of sales of, of distressed properties shift dramatically from where it was uh, five or 10 years ago. So normally you see a pretty high percentage of, of distressed properties selling at the auction or selling as, as lender-owned REO assets. Today, about 65% of distressed property sales are in the pre-foreclosure period. So the homeowner is getting that first notice of default. And rather than losing everything at a foreclosure auction, they're selling the property themselves on the open market to avoid uh, losing everything to a foreclosure. Perfect. So you've got pre-foreclosure, which is when you've missed payments, you've fallen behind, the bank sends you a letter saying, hey, you're in default. I believe in most states, they have to put something in the newspaper. There needs to be some kind of public declaration that the person is going into foreclosure. Funny, I see Dave Lee in a face because that's weird, right? Why are, you, why are you putting our business out in the streets like that? But I think the idea was people could say, well, I never got that letter. So like a long time ago, they would like, you know, post it out there in like the community bulletin board or put it in a public space so that the person couldn't claim that they weren't notified. That's what most of the wholesalers or the people that are looking for off-market deals, they're fishing in that pond. They're like, who's got a notice of default or an NOD? How do we get a hold of them? Because if they have some equity, but they're going to lose the property, let's buy it first. You mentioned that, Rick. If that doesn't work, the bank then says, hey, we're going to sell the house on the courthouse steps in some kind of a public auction and get our money back from the person. If it's a non-recourse loan, if your property sells for less than what you owed, then, hey, you're off the hook. But if it was a recourse loan, you are still on the hook for whatever was owed after the auction, which sucks because stuff never sells for as much at an auction as much as it would sell for on the open market. And then if it doesn't sell on the courthouse steps, then the lender or in the what's usually the case is the bank has to take the property back. It becomes a part of their portfolio. They take title to it and it's referred to as REO because it's looked at as real estate owned on the bank's books. That's when a bank would go say to a real estate agent, hey, sell this thing. We don't know what the heck to do with it, right? Kind of like when you hand a, a grown single man a baby and he's like, I don't know what I, what do I do with this thing, right? That's how banks feel about taking properties back. So that's where you can... uh you can find those properties on the MLS, but that's a great explanation because people just throw the word foreclosure around and it's confusing because not everybody understands that a foreclosure that's listed on the MLS as REO is not going to be something you get a great deal on because all the other buyers see it versus a foreclosure that you're buying on the courthouse steps could be a great deal, but you're going to have to have all cash. You're not going to get a title check. You're not going to get inspections. And then a foreclosure and pre-foreclosure is something you actually probably could get a really good deal on because the person's motivated to sell it. However, it's hard to find them because you have to find the person who's got the property. Okay, that's a great explanation. Thank you for bringing some clarity there to all of our audience. Okay, so now that we understand the three different levels of foreclosure, the question is, what does the current foreclosure landscape mean for your real estate investing strategy? We'll get to that right after the break. What's better than low money down? No money down. Now through rent to retirement, you can buy a brand new construction turnkey rental property for no money down. Wait, hold on. This can't be right. I need to double check with Zach, rent to retirement CEO. Oh, hey, Rob. Zach, how the heck are you selling turnkey rental properties for $0 down? <laughs> it's not that complicated, Rob. 
Rent to Retirement has new construction properties up to $20,000 below retail prices. We also have investor loans with rates as low as 3.99% and down payment options as low as 5% or sometimes even zero money down. You get all the cash flow, appreciation, and equity for as little as zero money down. That's an infinite return. Oh, wait, wait. Let me get on this before we tell it to the whole Bigger Pockets audience. Just head to renttoretirement.com. That's renttoretirement.com or text REI to 33777. That's REI to 33777 to learn more about how you can get started investing with no money down today. Get your next new construction property at a steep discount or invest with no money down. Head to renttoretirement.com today. You might think you want real estate, but that's not true. What you really want is passive income. With new investors struggling to find deals or get enough money to buy them and veteran landlords tired of the constant tenant phone calls, is there a better alternative? Actually, there is. Short notes from Connect Invest. Connect Invest is an online investing platform that allows you to easily participate in passive real estate investing, and all you need is $500 to start. Short Notes collectively funds a diversified portfolio of commercial and residential real estate projects across acquisition, construction, and development phases. You'll earn a fixed monthly income without the hassle of owning or managing real estate. Head to connectinvest.com BP to create your account. Fund your digital wallet with at least $500. Select from six, 12, and 24-month short notes with annualized return rates up to 9%. Then sit back and let your monthly returns roll in. Join today by visiting connectinvest.com slash VP. Connectinvest.com slash VP. Whenever I used to travel, I would get that creeping feeling that I lock my back door. How do I know my property is going to be safe while I'm away? But not anymore, thanks to Simply Safe Home Security. I'm about to go on a three-week trip to Copenhagen, but am I tripping about my trip? Nope. With award-winning security and peace of mind from Simply Safe, I don't need to worry. Simply Safe is a super amazing alarm system that I actually installed in my house myself personally in less than 30 minutes, and there's so much peace of mind knowing that there's something in place to protect my homes, my goods, and my John Mayer shrine. Simply Safe systems have high-tech sensors that detect break-ins, fires, and floods, indoor and outdoor cameras to keep watch night and day. 24/7 professional monitoring at less than $1 a day. Plus, Simply Safe professional monitoring agents can even help stop crime in real time by speaking to intruders through the wireless indoor camera. Hey, hey bud, get out of here. It's like that, but it's a lot better, I imagine. And if you buy the system and you don't love it, you can get a full refund with Simply Safe's 60-day money back guarantee. Simply Safe has given me and many of our listeners real peace of mind, and I want you to have it too. Right now, get 20% off of any new Simply Safe system with fast protect monitoring at simplysafe.com/pockets. There's no safe like Simply Safe. Welcome back. We're here with Rick Sharga, president and CEO of CJ Patrick, and he is spelling out his company's market intel on the state of foreclosures in the United States, as well as what that means for real estate investors. So Rick, you mentioned that the early stages of the foreclosure process have started to tick up, but sales are not. And that is likely from your my understanding because people are selling them earlier. Is that a consequence of all of the equity that the average American homeowner has? Yeah, that's you're, you're, you're spot on, Dave. There's $31 trillion in homeowner equity out there. That's a, an all-time record. And when I go out and talk to groups and I, I point out that there's a lot of equity, the pushback I usually get is, well, yeah, but people in foreclosure don't have equity. Well, yes, they do have equity. Um, in fact, according to, uh, to some research from Adam Data, uh, 80% of of borrowers in foreclosure have at least 20% equity. 
Uh, I've seen some other reports from from companies like Black Knight where that percentage is a little lower, but you're still talking about close to 70%. So if you're sitting on a, a $400,000, $500,000 house and you have 20% equity, that gives you, you know, $80,000, $100,000 cushion to work with. Uh, it also gives you the potential of losing eighty dollars to $100,000 of equity if that property gets auctioned off in a foreclosure sale because the lender is going to sell it only for the amount still owed on the property, not for all of your, your full market value. So, you know, intelligent people who have fallen on, on difficult times financially are leveraging that equity and selling the property off either at or close to full market value. But, but if you're a, if you're a savvy investor, if you know how to work with borrowers in, in, in that kind of financial distress, you can usually find yourself a property uh, negotiate a deal that gets you something below full market value, uh, but lets that distressed homeowner walk away with some cash in their pocket and get a fresh start. Uh, if you're a rental property investor, you might have somebody who's temporarily fallen on hard times, recently got a new job, but just can't catch up on payments. Uh, and maybe they become a worthwhile tenant. So you can buy a property with a, a built-in you know, renter. Uh, right off the bat. So it's it's a very different market dynamic than what we saw during the foreclosure crisis of 2008 to 2011, where the, the right strategy was to wait for the lender to repossess the property and buy an REO because the banks were selling them at fire sale prices just to get them off the books. Uh, and your average borrower in foreclosure was way underwater on their loan. Uh, it's just not the case anymore. And in fact, some of the, the 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 equity numbers would would just blow people's minds if if they saw somebody in foreclosure who's sitting on seventy percent equity. Uh, and and you know, there's a, a a question I do get periodically, which is with all that equity, how they wind up in foreclosure. And and the truth is that having equity doesn't prevent you from missing payments. Uh, and, and that's what gets you into foreclosure. So typically it's the same old things. It's job loss, uh, unexpected medical bills, divorce, uh, death in the family, things like that, that, that cause people to miss payments and go into foreclosure. But that equity provides them with a, a, a much uh, better chance at a soft landing uh, than, than what they had you know, with, with no equity back in the day. Rick, I think that's so important that the amount of equity that you have in your home and your ability to pay your mortgage are not the same thing. And, and you can be have relative wealth in one area and still have negative cash flow as a household. And so unfortunately, people do fall on hard times, even though they have positive equity. And I do want to get to talking about why people have so much positive equity. But I have one question. Someone on our on our podcast on the market recently, it may have been you, Rick, so please forgive me if I've forgotten, was telling me that the banks also now sort of have expanded their playbooks for how they can intervene in these unfortunate circumstances. Like it seems like back in 2008, they really didn't know what to do with someone who stopped paying their mortgage. Are they more equipped to handle that now? Well, it was a bit of a perfect storm back in 2008. Uh, the banks didn't have a particularly robust toolkit of, of ways to help borrowers who wound up in default. Um, and they got overwhelmed with just the sheer volume. Again, we had four times the normal level of foreclosures and they were all happening at once. Uh, and and they these loans that were, were just awful, awful loans that were written at the time. So in a lot of cases, there was very little the banks could even do. So fast forward 10 years to today, 
the loan quality uh, of, of mortgages written over the last decade has been extraordinary, uh, probably the, the highest quality in history. Um, we've had an, an enormous amount of equity growth. And in the meanwhile, uh, the mortgage servicers have really developed uh, many more processes and tools they can use to help borrowers. In addition to that, we just went through this forbearance program that has been, for my money, probably the most successful example of the government and the mortgage industry working together to achieve a positive outcome ever. 8.7 million borrowers took advantage of that for, forbearance program. Uh, there's probably about 200,000 remaining in the program today. But of that 8.7 million, the people that have exited, less than 1% have defaulted on their loans. So it's just been a remarkable, remarkable success story. And what we're seeing is the, the large entities that play in the mortgage space, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, FHA, uh, have, have kind of co-opted some of the techniques that we saw used in that forbearance program uh, and, and are making those available to mortgage servicers to, to create uh, you know, loan modifications and loss mitigation strategies. Um, uh, Fannie and Freddie have been instructed to make a similar forbearance program part of their ongoing uh, loss mitigation uh, activity. Uh, Ginny May lenders have been given the option of extending the terms of a mortgage from 30 years to 40 years to get the monthly payment down on, on again, on distressed loans only, not as a new loan. Uh, and the FHA has a program where they can actually remove part of the mortgage loan and tack it on to the back end so that you don't owe any payments on, you know, maybe 10% of your loan uh, until until you either sell the property or refinance the, the loan at the end of the term. And that lowers their monthly payments. There's a lot more um, creative uh, processes involved today in loss, mitif loss mitigation and loan modifications than what we saw 10 years ago. And candidly, the servicers are reluctant to foreclose on anybody. They're not absolutely sure they can't help salvage. Uh, because they, they don't want the, the CFPB to come down on them with the wrath of God either. So there's some motivation from that perspective as well. That's a great insight into the history of foreclosures. And I do like that you mentioned the last housing crisis we had around 2010, 11, 12. It wasn't just, hey, it's a bad economy. It was an absolute collapse of the housing market, which flooded the market with an insane amount of inventory at the same time that people were losing their jobs and we went into an economic recession. So you had way fewer buyers to buy these properties and in a, an outrageous amount of supply that hit the market, which led to an utter collapse of housing prices. And I think a lot of people feel like foreclosure is synonymous with buy it for 30% of what it's worth. And that that's not the same. And I really love that you you pointed that out. Going into 2024, I think that, you know, just from what I see in the market, there's a good chance that we're going to have more foreclosures than what we've traditionally had. I don't know it's going to be an incredible spike like what we saw before. What do you think people should look out for, expect regarding foreclosure activity going into the new year? So I'll, I'll answer that question, but I want to touch on something you said earlier, because I think it's critically important. Um, we really did have a perfect storm back in 2008. It, it, we've never seen that set of dynamics happen at the same time. And what people don't realize is right before the market crashed, we had about a 13-month supply of homes available for sale. In a normal market, you're looking at about a six-month supply of homes available for sale. 
In today's market, you're looking at about two and a half to three months supply. So we're, we were dealing with, with an overabundance of, of inventory back then, um, right before the, everything started to go bad from a lending perspective. Uh, and, and it just, it, it, it built on itself. So that combination of more supply than demand plus distressed inventory coming to market really is what cratered home prices. Uh, and, and people were buying properties at 30 cents on the, on the, the dollar. Um, uh, investors actually helped pull the, the economy out of a recession by going in and starting to gobble up all that inventory. Uh, but, but last time that, that big great recession, was the first time that I've ever seen where the housing market actually took the economy into a recession. Usually, the housing market helps the economy recover from a recession. Uh, but, but this time, we actually took it in because things were so bad. Not a replay of that at all in 2024. Uh, in, in fact, we, we ended 2023 with about 0.4% of loans in foreclosure. Uh, which, which again is, is way lower than normal. Um, to put that in perspective, that means you're looking at somewhere between 200 and 250,000 homes in some stage of foreclosure. And in a normal market, that number would have been more like 500, 600,000. So just not a lot of activity. Um, what continues to happen is that people get that first notice. And instead of, of going into hiding and denial, they're, they're acting quickly and, and selling off a lot of those properties. So that's adding a little bit to the for sale inventory, um, but, but not, not really adding to, to distressed property inventory in, in the long run. Uh, my, my most likely scenario uh, for, for the balance of 2024 is we see a gradual return to pre-pandemic levels of foreclosure starts, but we will continue to see a lag in the number of properties that get to the auction. And we'll continue to see uh, fewer bank repossessions than we've seen in prior cycles. We probably don't see those come back to normal levels at the earliest until 2025. Interesting. And what is it about 2025 that you think we'll start to see that change? One of the reasons I think we'll see a, a higher number of REOs in, in 2025 is simply the length of time it takes people to execute a foreclosure. Uh, so if you're in, in states that have relatively high numbers of foreclosure starts today, like New York and, and, and Florida and Illinois, um, it takes 1,800 days on average to finish a foreclosure in New York. So a foreclosure start from 2023 probably won't get all the way through the process until sometime in 2025. Uh, and, and so what I'm expecting is a lot of the activity that we've seen start in the last year doesn't finish until we get through 2024 and into 2025. Rick, the New York Fed puts out some really interesting data about loan delinquencies. And if you look at other debt classes like credit card debt or just consumer debt, auto loans, it does look like defaults are starting to tick up. Is there a reason they're going up in those other types of debt, but not for mortgages? Yeah, you know, the, it, it's a, another reversal from where we were in 2008. Back then, people were paying their car loans, but letting the mortgages go. And the, the running joke back then was you could sleep in your car, but you couldn't drive your house to work. Um, in, in today's market, you're, you're absolutely right. What we're seeing is an increase in consumer delinquencies, uh, in credit cards, in auto loans in particular, uh, in other consumer loans, uh, student loans haven't started to go delinquent yet, but we've only just seen uh, the payments start again on student loans. 
after a hiatus of a couple of years. But mortgage delinquency rates have actually been going down. Uh, and, you know, part of me believes the reason for that is people realize how much equity they have in these homes uh, and they are protecting that equity, even if it means they're going to be a little late on, on some of their other um, some of their other credit responsibilities. The other thing that that's probably worth uh, taking a little bit more of a look at when you were talking about these these trends is that a lot of the delinquencies in the other areas of consumer credit are only 30 day delinquencies. So somebody's missing a payment or late on a payment, but they seem to be catching up pretty quickly after that. And even with the increases we're seeing, the, the delinquency rates are still probably around half of what they were back in the in the Great Recession. So it's it's not a crisis yet, but we, we do watch consumers for financial stress. Uh, last quarter, uh, actually, the third quarter of 2023 was the first time consumer credit card use had ever surpassed a trillion dollars. That's a big number in and of itself. And it happened at a time when, because the Fed had, had continuously raised the Fed funds rate, credit card interest rates were, were on average at about 25%. So we had a trillion dollars of credit card use at some of the highest interest rates ever. That could lead to some problems down the road. And in the auto market, uh, during the pandemic, we saw an awful lot of subprime lending in, in the auto industry so that people could sell cars. Uh, and a lot of those bad loans are simply coming home to roost. So it, it'll be interesting to follow. But but the metric I would I would give people to watch if you're you're curious about mortgage delinquencies is the unemployment rate. Very, very strong correlation between the unemployment rate and the mortgage delinquency rate. Uh, and if you look at at late 2023, uh, mortgage delinquency rates, they were at about 3.26%, while unemployment was at about 3.6%. So there, there really continues to be a correlation. If you see unemployment numbers start to tick up, you'll probably see mortgage delinquency start to tick up. But your question is, is great because unless a mortgage goes delinquent, it's not going to go into foreclosure. So if, if you're looking at historically low levels of mortgage delinquencies, it stands to reason that we're not going to see a huge wave of foreclosures until those numbers change. Thank you for answering that. That's something I've been wondering about for a while. This is such great context for all of our listeners, and I imagine many of our listeners want to know if these foreclosure trends will lead to more supply. We'll get Rick's answer to that right after this break, and stay tuned to the end as we answer a listener question on our Seeing Green segment, my favorite part of the show. Whenever I used to travel, I would get that creeping feeling that I locked my back door. How do I know my property is going to be safe while I'm away? But not anymore, thanks to Simply Safe Home Security. I'm about to go on a three-week trip to Copenhagen, but am I tripping about my trip? Nope. With award-winning security and peace of mind from Simply Safe, I don't need to worry. Simply Safe is a super amazing alarm system that I actually installed in my house myself personally in less than 30 minutes. And there's so much peace of mind knowing that there's something in place to protect my homes, my goods, and my John Mayer shrine. Simply Safe systems have high-tech sensors that detect break-ins, fires, and floods, indoor and outdoor cameras to keep watch night and day, 24-7 professional monitoring at less than $1 a day. Plus, Simply Safe professional monitoring agents can even help stop crime in real time by speaking to intruders through the wireless indoor camera. 
hey, hey, bud, get out of here. It's like that, but it's a lot better, I imagine. And if you buy the system and you don't love it, you can get a full refund with Simply Safe's 60 day money back guarantee. Simply Safe has given me and many of our listeners real peace of mind, and I want you to have it too. Right now, get 20% off of any new Simply Safe system with Fast Protect monitoring at slash pockets. There's no safe like Simply Safe. Every lender loves to talk about how easy it is to get a mortgage. Then, when it's time to fund your next deal, they ask for your full financials, your blood type, your mother's famous spaghetti recipe, and a map to the fountain of youth. Sound familiar? You you got all that handy, right? Why not switch to a lender who actually makes qualifying for a loan easy? A lender like Host Financial. Host Financial takes the tedious tax returns, endless W-2s, and time-consuming financial requests out of the picture. Their light doc and common sense underwriting guidelines mean frictionless transactions every time. You'll even be able to use the actual or projected income of the short-term or long-term rental you're looking to purchase or pull equity out of. That's what lending built for investors looks like. So take the next step and grow your portfolio faster. Visit hostfinancial.com to request a quote in as fast as 60 seconds, which is faster than this ad. If not, it's pretty close. That's host, H-O-S-T, financial.com. Again, that's host, H-O-S-T, financial.com. Finding rental property insurance has been a headache for the past few years. You know the feeling. You're scrambling, calling 20 different insurance agencies in a dozen different cities, struggling to protect your portfolio at the right cost. But I'm going to tell you a little secret that'll change everything. Veteran investors don't go through the everyday insurance companies. They just use NREG. NREG, that's N-R-E-I-G, provides insurance solely for real estate investors. They've built the largest insurance program in the country for residential tenant-occupied, vacant, and renovation properties. The best part? You can put all your properties on one insurance schedule and one monthly bill. And you can add, change, or remove properties without having to cancel one policy and purchase another. They insure properties from single-family rentals, up to 20-unit multifamily dwellings, vacation rentals, mobile homes, condos, and more. Trade catchy jingles for cash flow with insurance made for investors. Visit nreg.com slash bppod to request a proposal. N-R-E-I-G dot com slash B-P-P-O-D. We're always looking for ways to improve, searching for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for better is by matching with quality candidates. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BiggerPockets. Just go to Indeed.com slash BiggerPockets right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash BiggerPockets. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So it sounds like, Rick, you know, at the top of the show, I mentioned that foreclosures are pretty important to the housing market because it is one channel uh, by which supply enters the housing market. It sounds like you don't believe and the data seems to show that foreclosure is probably not going to add a lot of supply next year. 
So Rick, let me ask you, do you think supply will increase in the housing market in the coming year and help thaw the market a little bit? And if so, where could that supply come from? So supply almost can't help but go up a little bit in 2024 because it, it's been so, so low in, in 2023, um, almost uh, almost the, the lowest levels in history. And that was certainly true for a while uh, in the new home space uh, where we had uh, just uh, almost no supply of of completed homes available for sale. I don't expect to see a flood of uh, existing homes listed for sale next year. Uh, in fact, I, I don't think we can expect to see a whole lot of those homes listed until we see mortgage rates drop down into the fives. Uh, right now, you have 70% of, of borrowers with an active mortgage who have a mortgage payment of 4% or lower. And the math just doesn't work. It's not that they're being picky and don't wanna sell. It's they can't afford to. You you sell a house with a 3% mortgage, you buy another house at exactly the same price, and you've effectively doubled your monthly payments. Most people simply can't afford to do that. So that's going to continue to suppress the, the number of existing homes that are listed. You will see people who need to sell their house continue to list their homes, and that's people in foreclosure. Uh, people that you know get get a job transfer, people that have you know uh, kids, uh, or get married, or or there's a death or divorce. So you'll you'll see that. But where I do think we'll see an increase, and we started to see indications along those lines, is in the new home market. Uh, we saw housing starts for single family owner occupied units jump up pretty significantly in in November, which is the most recent month we have those numbers for. Uh, and and the builders seem to be trying to take advantage of a market where their prices are almost at a parity level with with the median price of existing homes being sold, uh, and where they're offering concessions and and buying down mortgage rates for their buyers. So in some markets, it's actually uh, a better economic decision for a buyer to buy a new home uh, than it is to buy an existing home. And I've I've actually seen some investors take the tack of, of targeting new home builders in their markets and looking for kind of the builder closeout deals. So, you know, you, you go to a Pulte or a, a, a Toll Brothers or some other builders and, and a development, and they have two homes left on, on, the, on the lot, uh, and they, they want to close out that development and reliquidate or, or, or recapitalize and move on to their next, next project. So it's a, it's a time when investors looking for the best deals really, really do have to be uh, pretty creative in their approach. And in, in some of those markets, those properties represent good deals for rental property investors. Tough to get them to pencil that for a flipper, uh, but but for a rental property investor, there might be an opportunity there. One of the things I like that you mentioned, Rick, is that foreclosure activity is related to economic activity, right? Like a big piece of it is recognizing that if there's equity in the home, you're way less likely to get a foreclosure because the seller's just going to sell it, even if they fall behind on their payments. But the other ingredient in the recipe of a foreclosure is you can't have equity and you have to not be able to make your payment. Right. So what are some of the economic indicators that you pay attention to or you think that real estate investors should be paying attention to that aren't directly related to foreclosures, but sort of are the lead in towards them? Yeah, you just tapped into the biggest one, David. The uh, the unemployment rate is huge. Um, I'm I'm still among what's probably a minority of people right now who believes that the country will see a bit of a recession this year. Uh, not a particularly severe one, not a particularly long one, but but something of an economic downturn. Um, I think the consumer is pretty much tapped out at this point. 
Uh, and, and if we do see consumer spending come down, it accounts for 70% of the U.S. GDP. Uh, and, and theoretically, at least, we, we, we could see a bit of a recession. If that happens, we'll see unemployment numbers go up. If we see unemployment numbers go up, we'll see mortgage delinquencies go up and, and more people uh, either having to sell off these, these properties or uh, wind up in foreclosure. So that's the biggest number I look at. And, and in a lot of markets, your national numbers are almost meaningless. So you really have to be looking at what's going on in your neck of the woods. Um, the other number that really is kind of important for investors to keep an eye on if we're talking about foreclosure potential is uh, sales, sales volume and, and prices. Uh, if, if you're in a market where prices are going down, it's that much more difficult for a borrower who's kind of marginal in terms of their equity uh, to be able to avoid a foreclosure. So if you're in the Pacific Northwest, if you're in coastal California, particularly some of the higher priced areas, if you're in Austin or Boise, some of the markets that were just soaring during the pandemic, uh, you're likely to be seeing prices come down a bit. Uh, on the other hand, if you're in the Southeast or the South, uh, huge swaths of the Midwest, we're seeing prices go up, uh, you know, over 5% year over year. So you're, you're looking at, at, the, the number of jobs created, you're looking at unemployment, you're looking at sales volume, you're looking at prices. Uh, and, and you know, a combination of those that looks negative tends to lead to more foreclosure activity. Great stuff there. This is awesome, Rick. I really appreciate you sharing this, especially because foreclosures are such an interesting topic in the world of real estate investing, but there's a lot of misinformation out there and a lot of people that have the wrong impression about how these things actually work. Just one thing I'd like to add, if you guys don't mind, um, I still see an awful lot of people talking about the pending and, and impending housing market crash. Uh, none of the data uh, supports that at all. One of the things that could precipitate a foreclosure cycle is a housing price crash. Uh, and I still see a lot of people trying to sell stuff on YouTube, uh, you know, purporting this, this impending doom. None of the data supports it. And, and even if we did have uh, home prices come down, much, much more than than they're likely to anywhere across the country. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean somebody goes into foreclosure. It just means they have less equity. Uh, again, we have a $31, $31 trillion equity cushion right now, which is just uh, the highest it's ever been. So I, I just encourage investors not to buy into the hype, uh, not to buy into the the people that are, are, are selling services to get you ready for that foreclosure tsunami that's about to hit. Uh, there, there's just nothing in the real numbers out there that suggests any of that stuff's going to happen. I appreciate you saying it because I say it a lot and people get upset. So now I don't have to be the only one that's sort of carrying that torch. It's very easy to scream. We're going to have a crash, especially because the last one was so traumatizingly horrible. Everyone sort of got it in the back of their mind if they were there. So even hinting that that might happen again will just elicit this very strong fear response. And that's how you get views. That's how you get clicks. That's how you get likes. But it's not how you actually run a successful portfolio. Thank you, Rick, for being a light in this dark and scary world of uh, foreclosure night in the real estate investing realm. We will see you on the next one. All right, let's jump into the next segment of our show, Seeing Green. 
As a listener to this podcast, you are a part of the growing and thriving BP community, and we love you. And this segment is where we get to connect with community members like you directly by answering listener questions that everybody can learn from. Today's question comes from Nelson in Northeast Pennsylvania. Nelson writes, I'm a big fan of the podcast and enjoy listening to every episode. Thanks for all the wise advice and amazing work that you and the BP team do. I purchased a triplex in 2015 and house hacked it, and the property value has roughly tripled, leaving me with about $300,000 in equity and great cash flow. For my next investment, I'm looking for something priced around 300 to 500,000, but I'm not sure what's the most optimal way to apply my new equity. Currently, I'm looking into getting a HELOC, but would also consider a cash out refinance if needed. My question is, how would you recommend that I use the equity in a case like this? Should I purchase a $300,000 property in cash, giving me additional buying power and leaving only the HELOC to pay down? Or should I use this equity to put 25% down on a more expensive property and pay a separate new mortgage? I'm not averse to taking risks, but I just want to be careful about over leveraging myself. Great question here, Dave. What do you think should be considered? Well, first of all, thank you for allowing me to be a part of Seeing Green. This is quite an honor. I feel like I've I've made it in my podcasting career now that I get to be on this segment. It's very fun. This is a great question from Nelson because I think a lot of people face this. You find one deal. Sounds like Nelson's had a ton of success here, which congratulations. Um, and you try and figure out what to do next. And I feel like I always give boring advice here because it really does depend on your personal goals and what you're trying to accomplish. But I do think the question is about really where Nelson finds himself in his investing career. Because buying a property in cash does feel appealing, I think, for a lot of people right now, if you have that ability, because mortgage rates are so high. But you have to remember that that is going to eat up some of your appreciation potential because you won't have leverage on the property. And just to remind everyone, leverage is a benefit you get when using debt because proportionally, when your property goes up in value, you earn a higher rate of return. And so generally speaking, for most people, and I don't know Nelson's specific situation, I think that if you're sort of earlier in your investing career, I think taking on an appropriate, taking on at least some debt is appropriate because you're going to get the benefits of that over the long run. Plus, the benefit of buying in cash is better cash flow. And if you're continuing to work and have a full-time job, you might not need that cash flow right now. That's sort of how I see it, David. What do you think? You know, when prices and rents were they're never guaranteed, but as as close to guarantees you can get the last eight years or so that they were going to go up. I leaned more towards erring on the side of boldness. I think you should borrow more. I think you should buy more. And I made it clear that my stance on that was because the government was creating so much money. There was so much stimulus going on that all the wins were at your back and pushing you forward. Now, does that guarantee a deal is going to go wrong? No, but it definitely puts the odds in your favor. In the market we're in right now, we're sort of in a stalemate. It's not a bad market where we think prices and rents are going down, but it's just not as likely to go up. We've sort of got opposing forces. They've got everything locked into one place. So I would still say buying is a good idea, but I wouldn't say buying aggressively is as good of a plan. I would like to see Nelson probably take out the HELOC, buy something in cash, use the extra cash flow from the property that doesn't have a mortgage to pay off that HELOC, which theoretically means every payment he makes on it is going to be less 
than the last one was. Now, the reason that I like that is it covers him on the downside because he's paying off his mortgage. It's a safer way to buy, but it also gives him upside potential if the market does turn around. If rates drop back down to something in the mid fours or something, or we get another round of stimulus and like, oh, here goes the party again. Prices are going up. He can always throw a mortgage on the new property, put more debt on it. And now he's got that capital to go play in the game when the odds are on his favor. So you sort of have to like, there's no guarantees. You have to put yourself in the position where you've got flexibility in different areas. I think with the market we're at right now, a bit of a stalemate. He's got some upside. He's protected against some downside. It's sort of right down the middle. What do you think about that? Yeah, I, I think that's a, a very good and defensive strategy and generally agree with that approach in this type of market is definitely not over leveraging yourself. One thing that I've been considering for deals is sort of taking the middle road and maybe putting 40% uh, equity into a deal instead of what is usually the minimum for an investor of 25%. Would you ever consider doing something like that, David? You know, this is a funny thing that you're asking me that. So I was talking to Jay Papazan. He's the author of uh, The One Thing with Gary Keller, as well as a lot of the other Keller Williams books. And he said something that made me feel really stupid. I was saying like, yeah, there's not much cash flowing right now. And he goes, unless you want to put 50% down. Yeah. That's a great point. We just sort of assume... <laughs> 20% down is the only way to get cash flow. So we we analyze a deal. It doesn't work at 20% down. We go, oh, there's no cash flow. There's no point of buying real estate. I'm just going to sit over here and sit on my thumbs. That's not true, though. If you have more money to put down, it will cash flow. You're just going to get a smaller ROI because the, the capital investing is greater. And so I think what you're saying is a great point. If you've got more money, you still can buy real estate and you're not taking on additional risk because it is going to cash flow. You just can't buy as much of it, which is one of the reasons that I continually give advice that we need to be saving our money and making more money, not just thinking about real estate investing. When real estate is doing awesome, of course, all we talk about is how to buy more of it, how to acquire it, how to build value in it. But when it's not doing awesome, it's just doing okay. You can still do awesome with the other two pillars of defense and offense, which I covered in my book, Pillars of Wealth. Uh, and you can get that on the Bigger Pockets bookstore as well as your book, David. Do you want to share where people can get your new book? Yeah. Thank you. It's right behind me. I just got it for the first time, actually, holding it in my hands. It's called Start With Strategy. You can find it at biggerpockets.com slash strategy book. It's all about how to individualize your approach to real estate investing based on your own goals, risk tolerances, and circumstances in life. All right. So if you ever wanted Dave and I to visit your house at the same time, go to the Bigger Pockets bookstore, buy each of our books, put them on the shelves next to each other. It'll look like we're holding hands. And you can tell your friends that you've been visited by David Green and Dave Meyer at the same time. Dave, thanks for joining me on the podcast and on Seeing Grain. Awesome doing a show with you as always. Hope to see you again on our next joint venture. And if you didn't know, Dave is a huge aficionado of sandwiches. His Instagram is the Data Deli. So go check him out there and let us know in the comments on YouTube what your favorite sandwich is because we want to know. This is David Green for Dave Strategy and Salami Meyer signing off. The market is changing and finding your way can be tricky. Rates shift, headlines whirl, but your goal hasn't changed. You want financial freedom and the best investors know it's not about timing the market. It's about time in the market. 
If you're ready to get into the real estate investing game or take your game to the next level, finding an investor-friendly agent is your next step. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in minutes. Just head to biggerpockets.com deals and enter a few details about what and where you want to buy and bam, instantly match with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. This free resource is only available at biggerpockets.com deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com deals. That's biggerpockets.com deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.